uh, in contradistinction to uh, our Rosh Chodesh speaker at lunch, I can say that I know Rabbi Adlerstein very well for many years. He's been here before. Those of you who haven't uh, heard him yet, you're in for a treat. Um, the, I think the bio was up, up on there. Um, just uh, in, He almost needs no introduction, but um, he is uh, really uh, a penetrating thinker. You're benefiting from his works. He's translated in Siva Sholem. He's translated some of the Maral's works. And... Um, I'm very interested to hear what he has to say about anti-Semitism. I should point out that he's been working for the Wiesenthal Center combating anti-Semitism for many years, and that's really, he's bringing a lot of credentials to the table. Thank you, Eric Kalinsky. It's always a pleasure to be here. Although, I've been here a good number of times in the past, I always think of a sheer, which would definitely be my preference. The first time, I believe, that I'm here using a different hat or no hat at all to give uh, more of a, an academic presentation. Uh, I do work for the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I have been working for them for many years. Not what I trained for in Kolo, but who does have a sense of humor. So I've been doing this for quite a while. I'm the director of interfaith affairs for the center. And yes, we are kind of ground zero in monitoring anti-Semitism and in doing what we can to combat it. So you know the one about the town anti-Semite back in the old country? There were lots of anti-Semites in town, but this guy like took the cake. He really had the reputation for being the top-notch anti-Semite. So one day, he surprises everybody by saying, get me the rabbi, I want to convert. <laughs> what? Get me the rabbi. The guy's powerful and has influence. And uh, they call the rabbi. The rabbi doesn't want to come originally, but uh, they prevail upon him, he comes. And he meets with the guy, and the guy says, uh, you know, I just came back from the doctor. And uh, he told me that the news is not good. I got like a year to live. We're not using that because it's not working well. So oh. if you just talk as loud as possible. Can we get it to work? No. It's, I'll t- if you stand right in front of it, it works. Right. <laughs> I always wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not going to work. Okay. Is it on? Now it works. Is it on? No, he tried now. Testing. Oh, there we go. Now it works. Now it's working. Okay. So uh, he said, the doctor says I got about a year to live. And uh, I want to convert. Rabbi takes him seriously, works with him for months and months and months tutoring him every day and uh, takes the better part of, uh, of a year. Finally, uh, the day comes and uh, he, can, he can hardly walk, but they take him to mikveh and uh, he comes out and within a matter of hours, he falls to his deathbed. And there, surrounded by family and friends with a serene look on his face, he looks up at heaven and his final words are, ah, one less Jew in the world. <laughs> in, in, in different times, I could, I could tell that anecdote and step down. Okay, that's anti-Semitism. Before, during, after, it's always been that way. Uh, but uh, now... I think I'm not going to get away with that. I've been tasked with describing the past, understanding best practices for the future with an eye on what the future is going to bring us. That's a lot to accomplish in 45 minutes or so, but I will, I will do my best. Uh, the history of anti-Semitism recorded history of anti-Semitism goes back quite a while. About 2,400 years to be exact. 
a fellow by the name of Hecataius of Abdurah, who used to preach uh, that Moses secluded his followers from other men. Jews, in other words, are isolationist. They are the other. They don't want to have anything to do with the rest of us. The most famous ancient anti-Semite was an Egyptian priest by the name of Manetho in Hellenic times. Moses, he taught, was a renegade priest, and he led a revolt of misfits and outcasts. And he took them out of Egypt. Uh, this became a persistent legend. Manetho left his Roshan on history. Uh, the part of anti-Semitism that most of us are more familiar with is religious anti-Semitism, particularly Christian anti-Semitism. And this has quite a storied uh, history. There are three elements, three elements in early church history that determined the course for persecution of the Jews, in some cases, Ad in some cases with a let-up a little bit after the Holocaust. The three are Ignatius, a second-century bishop of Antioch. In his epistle of Barnabas, he started what is called replacement theology or supersessionism. I don't know the difference between them. Replacement theology grows out of the following. The early church didn't know what to do with Tanakh. There were those who said, Tanakh, that's written by the Jewish God. We don't have any use for that. Um, that view was, was uh, held to be heretical by the early church. This has to be Yad Hashem. So they were left with maintaining, keeping the Old Testament, as they would call it, and then figuring out what to do with it. Now, the Old Testament is a bit of a problem. There are a number of covenants and promises to the Jewish people. What do you do with that, even if you add on a New Testament? So Ignatius is the guy who came up with the solution. <laughs> All the promises to the Jews were promised to Israel. But from the earliest days of Israel, the Jewish people, there were those who were loyal to the message and those who were... Kaha, kaha. By the time you get around to the founder of Christianity, the people who were willing to abide by the covenant were the new Jews, us Christians. And the old Jews, well, that they didn't quite specify. That would take some other contributions of the early church. Uh, so around the same time, Justin introduced the charge of deicide. The Jews killed God. Uh, that did not help us. I actually knew of a guy back in the old days in New York. I didn't know him personally. And a lot of the guys who knew him who was once set upon by a, a group of uh, um, unfriendlies. And they said, Jew, Jew! We're gonna we're gonna beat you up now. And what I do? What I do? He says you killed our God. No, I didn't. Yes, he did. No, I didn't. He said, I'll prove to you. I'll prove to you that we didn't. You had to do that, Jew. He says, trust me. When we kill someone, he stays dead. <laughs> <laughs> they beat him up anyway. But the two, the double whammy of replacement theology plus deicide collective guilt of the Jewish people for the crucifixion were the two dominant features of church-inspired um, anti-Semitism ad hayom hazeh. But a third element was added by John Chrysostom in the 4th century, sometimes called the golden-tongued. The golden -tongued. He called Jews the most miserable of all men, lustful, rapacious, greedy, perfidious <coughs> bandits, inveterate murderers, destroyers, men possessed by the devil, debauchery and drunkenness, 
have given them the manners of the pig and the lusty goat. Uh, he goes on. So, the first two did not specify exactly what was supposed to happen to the Jews, but Justin kind of completed the uh, trifecta. Uh, the Jews um, were no longer the chosen of God. That's now us, the new Jews. Uh, we've superseded them. We've replaced them. That's why it's called replacement theology. They, the old Jews and their, and their descendants bear the stain of deicide, of killing God, and they happen to be rotten, rotten people. So they were consigned to the trash heap of history, and this made it much easier for even Christians who weren't so the shame shemayim to uh, treat Jews as vermin, which they they often did. Uh, as we move along in history, new forms of anti-Semitism came along. One was economic anti-Semitism. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with the famous story of Menashe ben Yisrael, the Gadol um, Betara uh, in, in Amsterdam. Uh, there's a painting of him by Rembrandt, which is important when you learn Meseches Makas and the sugya of what you're allowed to shave and what you're not allowed to shave. Because Menashe ben Yisrael had a beard, but not quite a beard. Now, as Menashe ben Yisrael thought he could identify the five places on your face where it's awesome the Deiraisa to shave, and the other parts were left exposed. So, it's before you uh, before you go to that sugya, you should really have a look at that picture. It helps you understand at least one of the shittas in the Rishonim. Menashe ben Yisrael once went to England, which I don't remember whether it was the first time they were thrown out of England, the second time they were thrown out of England. But he went to Cromwell, who many of you might remember. Uh, and uh, he said, Cromwell, he says, yeah, you guys are waiting for something, right? Yeah, sure, we're waiting for the, the second coming, for the return of our Savior. You believe that's going to happen, right? He says, sure I do. He says, you know something, Rip Cromwell? You are holding back the Messiah. Me? What did I do? He takes out a Tanakh and he shows a Nevoah that the that the Jews would be would be spread out to the four corners of the world. He says, I look around at the globe and the Jews are everywhere except by you because you threw them out of England. So that was his pitch that he should let the Jews back in England. Cromwell himself accepted the, the claim but the shopkeepers in London did not. The shopkeepers did not. That is emblematic of a different kind of anti-Semitism. It's not totally divergent from the others. It's perhaps built upon it, but it was the idea that, you know, Jews are sometimes pretty good at what they do, and uh, we believe that they're rapacious, as Chrysostom said, to begin with. We don't want the competition. So um, what happened was, by the way, the end of the story is, he goes back to Amsterdam, convinced that his mission had failed because he was given an official no by Cromwell. But Cromwell really took the story to heart and Jews started coming in through the back door and because Cromwell was favorable to them, he let them stay there. It wasn't until the 19th century, I believe, that they were officially allowed back in. But uh, that started centuries of, uh, of, of, uh, of a Jewish issue. There, the next step is racial anti-Semitism, and here we're getting closer to our own day. This is only you know 200 years old. The idea that forget about the religion, Voltaire, Voltaire was certainly one of probably the two most important philosophical figures in his day, and extremely, extremely anti-Christian. Um, wrote a letter about the Jews. He said, the Jews are a people who've never contributed anything to mankind. They're incapable of it. From the Jews, you have nothing, no science, no arts, 
Nothing. They've never contributed anything. Because they're incapable. Uh, and he signed it, Lettre Christian Voltaire. At that, for that moment, he became Christian. <laughs> Racial anti-Semitism, of course, led eventually to, directly to the Shoah, to the Holocaust. The idea that Jews as a race are inferior to other people and uh, a people whose uh, genes can pollute the rest of civilization. Um, we're almost at the end of the historical part. Comes the Shoah and there's a bit of a reset. A bit of a reset. This would take a, another lecture or two, but what happened almost immediately in the aftermath of the Holocaust was that there was a rethinking of different parts, especially of the Christian world and the attitudes towards Jews. Everybody made nice-nice. Um, eventually, the Catholic Church in particular, the only church that really has the power to change a, an ideology or a theology, eventually, starting with uh, Pope John XXIII and Nostra Aetate, and then, uh, you know, culminating finally in what we call the Jewish Pope, uh, just uh, three popes ago, uh, came to a new understanding of, uh, of who Jews are. At the same time, it became very, very out of vogue to be openly and publicly anti-Semitic until October 7th. And that was the turning point. Things were, were getting closer to it you know, you invented anti-Zionism as a substitute for anti-Semitism. Everybody understood. Wink, wink. But you still had to use substitutions. You couldn't go through the streets yelling, gas the Jews. It was, some, in some part, the reaction of the Western world to the horrors of the Shoah. And if anything, it's a nest that um, it lasted as long as it did. It was a nest. It was HaKadosh Baruch Hu creating a bubble for the Jewish people to recover from the horrors of the Shoah and to rebuild the state of Israel. That was a necessary part of it. That, uh, that, that came to an end on October, on October 7th when we saw tens of thousands, I won't call it hundreds of thousands of people because not all of those hundreds of thousands were saying gas the Jews. It was in the minds of many but, but now they were able to parade it in the streets. And they were able to, able to get away with it. Uh, in, the, in, in this interregnum of sorts, you had the rise of anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism. Reaction to the Jewish state, to the success of the Jewish state, to the continued wars, to the so-called occupation. And then the last step in this the one that many of you know better than I do, is the rise of wokeism and woke intersectionality. So that even without October 7th, Jews found themselves in the enviable position of being considered to be white by the left. So white that they were told that they had to do their part of, uh, of uh, confessing and undoing the burden of white privilege, while the right said, Jews, white, no, no. You know, we want to see a return to white civilization, but there's no place for Jews in that. That, of course, is also symptomatic of where anti-Semitism has been throughout history. It's always been protean. It would take very different forms, sometimes within a few miles of each other. The Germans claimed that the Jews were communists. The Russians claimed that the Jews were capitalists, you know, separated only by a couple of miles. It never made so much sense. I do want to mention here, maybe the only Chiddush that I'm going to say today, and that, has anybody caught me on leaving out one major form of anti-Semitism? The self-hating Jew? <laughs> yeah, then I'll come back for a year and talk about the Eberfrau. Uh, 
and, uh, and, and and other things. Yes, that's very good. But this one is far, far bigger, far bigger. Religious anti-Semitism. So religious anti-Semitism is still there, but that did change course after the Holocaust. For Catholics, anti-Semitism is a sin. Uh, the Protestant churches, some are very, very good. We'll talk about that later. And some are very, very, very bad. Um, and then, of course, you have Islamic anti-Semitism. Yeah? And, uh, you know, here you can, you, can, you, can all, you can do a debate on whether it's Islam that's the problem, which I think is a mistake. It's not Islam that's the problem. It's Islamic culture. The two are very different. You can suffer from the anti-Semitism of Islamic culture even if you don't fast in Ramadan. And you can fast in Ramadan and not be anti-Semitic. Uh, our problem really is Islamic culture more than Islam. It happens to be that most of the world today, the only kind of Islam that's available to most people, with the exception of a few Islamic groups and one major organization in Indonesia, uh, it is just part of the part of the scene. But here's the one that nobody's going to guess, and that is unconscious anti-Semitism. The idea of unconscious anti-Semitism is that there are millions of people out there who do not realize that they are anti-Semites. If you would tell them that they're anti-Semites, they would get insulted, and insist that they are not. But I believe that there are probably more of them out there than conscious anti-Semites. I met a guy years ago who was a fierce Christian advocate for Jewish causes, for Jewish causes, and uh, I asked him once, like, how did you get started in this thing? He said, you know, one day I woke up and I realized... I don't like Jews. I don't like Jews. He said, it frightened me. Why Why do I not like Jews? And he didn't tell, he didn't come up with the usual stories. He had a bad thing with a Jewish landlord. No. He, he, didn't, he didn't have any reason not to like Jews. But he hated Jews. So he said, as a kapara for that, or to move in the other direction, gosh, the guy is an anti-Semitische Balmusser. He said, that I got to go to the other direction. And he did, but he didn't come back to the middle. He stayed that way. And he became, I, I think he's still doing it now, I've lost contact with him for a few years, but he devoted his professional career to Jewish advocacy. So unconscious anti-Semitism is responsible for so many of the phenomena that you see today. You've used some of these things as talking points to your friends and neighbors and the folks back home. I'm sure you've used some of these things, right? So the whole world is up in arms about what's happening now in Gaza. Innocent civilians, I don't know how many of them are innocent, but whatever. Accept that. Ask any of them, how many, how many Muslims did Bashar Assad kill? How many? How many millions? It wasn't millions. It wasn't millions. It was five to six hundred thousand people that he killed directly. And then how many people were exiled? How many people were exiled? Thirteen million. A few million are still living in tents. There was a time, just a few years ago, where the New York Times carried on the front page the local bleeding heart. They were, I shouldn't say pejoratively, I don't mean pejoratively, these horrible stories sometimes beamed by children, there was one girl in particular, I forgot which, in which city, who was, who was doing live streaming of what it was like to live with the incessant bombardment by, by Assad's forces. I don't know if she made it out alive. There was a lot of concern at the time. Where is any of that concern today? Where did it go? Where did it go? If you ask people, what conflict in the late 20th century, early 21st century, is the bloodiest 
the bloodiest in terms of casualties. What's the answer? It's not Israel Palestine. What is it? It's not a, it's not the Syrian civil war either. Congo. Congo. A war that's still going on. I'd say, you know, 90% of the people who are marching through the streets in London and Paris and every other place wouldn't know where to find Congo on the map. But if you can get Jews implicated, that's something else. Why? Why? Some of them undoubtedly, especially the Muslims, are anti-Semitic. What about the others? Does it? Why does the suffering of other people not register, but it does when we do it? It's because subconsciously they don't like Jews and don't accept Jews. And that is a very insidious form of anti-Semitism that you have to be aware of. There, there are different theories about where anti-Semitism comes from. Is it jealousy, like the London shopkeepers? And uh, there was a lot of that in Germany, for sure. Before World War II, you know, anti-Semitism in Germany did not start exactly with Hitler, Yamakshimo. Is it the idea of otherness? that Jews kept themselves separate? Is it just the availability of scapegoat? Uh, we're much more in tune today with the dynamics of leadership and, and what, you, what you need to keep your, your street pacified. You, you, give them, you give them a war or you give them a scapegoat and the Jews were the world's oldest scapegoat, the most convenient scapegoat. They had no land. They had no rights. So they're a great scapegoat. Is it something that's very popular in some circles, more conservative circles or more traditional circles, uh, closer to our thinking, that Jews are the moral conscience of the world? And because of that, a world that's not ready to hear our message aligns against us. I think there's a lot of truth in it, but it doesn't cover everything because you got some people out there who couldn't care less about moral conscience. They don't know how to spell it. They don't know. They're, they're so far beyond that. And, and a lot of Jews don't seem to be the ones, paragons of virtue anymore, that are taking these uh, ideas that uh, have revolutionized the world in the past and continue to plague the world's conscience that's not the Jews that they see. I think there's this inadequacy, this is nothing new, you didn't need to tell you this, there's an inadequacy of all the prevailing theories to explain anti-Semitism, to talk about its contradictions, its self-defeating irrationality, you know, Hitler denying his troops, denying his own troops on the front needed support and material because he was busy trying to kill more Jews and send them off to extermination camps. What's our hashkafa about this? What's our hashkafa? This whole thing is not going to take a long time. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. It starts off with one medrash. Why is Har Sinai called Sinai? Mikan Yarda Sina Laola. And you can take that in a couple of ways. You can take that to mean... Like I just said, the moral conscience article that we represent something, uh, which is which is still true today. Mikan Yarda Sinol Olam from Mount Sinai hatred Sinai Sina they alliterate uh, hatred descended to the world that because of Har Sinai because we received the Torah because we had a direct relationship with God. And that covenant, that relationship, the message and mission continued. That is a source of that is a source of hatred. There is more of that today, I think, than at most times in history. It was around a lot in Roman times. The Romans were horribly opposed to us because we had essentially shown up the Roman system of gods. Uh, and uh, at the height of the Roman Empire, uh, Josephus says that most of the women in in Beirut, non-Jewish, were lighting Shabbos candles. That's what he claims. And that was there was no Chabad around them. 
So, you know, that takes, that takes some doing. But they were lighting Shabbos candles because, because the, the contrast between their religion of overgrown bully gods versus our conception of every person being created of every person having a shot and even a probability of eternity uh, was so different that uh, we were a real, real threat to them. We continue to be a threat to the church, which is why the, the church moved it. The, the, you know, the first, the first uh, waves in the church were from, starting from uh, Jesus' brother, James. They were medactic and halacha. Um, but they lost eventually to the to the Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians then moved uh, really for a couple of hundred years to get rid of any Jewish influences because they continued to be attractive to the early Christians, threatening to pull them back in. Now, in recent years, this has become a factor again, as Western religion has become one of atheism of moral relativism, of the absence of, of, uh, of, of any absolutes, I will show my age that I can remember a time when people used to argue about who has the truth. Then it became, well, nobody can claim that because there are different versions of the truth. And then it became that if there is a truth, it's inaccessible. And then it became, the postmodern version is truth? That there just is no such thing. And this became not just a, a possibility, a philosophical concept you could play with, it became a feature of Western society, especially in academia. Uh, to quote uh, George Orwell, there are some ideas that are so stupid that only intellectuals can believe them. And that, that to a great extent, is where, we, is where we are today. But Jews, and I should say, serious Christians, serious Christians, are the hated enemy. If this weren't the war, I would tell you the stats on whose places are getting burnt down today. You don't hear about too many synagogues getting burnt down today. But they don't even report how many churches, La Havdil, they burn down every year in France. It doesn't make the news anymore. But they do it for the same reason. Religion, belief in the God of the Bible is detested. Because that means that there are certain things that are true and stay true, and that are knowable by human beings, and that human beings are responsible for them. So the, the, the medrash about sinna Hatred because of Sinai is very, very much relevant today. Now, the one that you hear quoted most often is Halacha Biodua Esav Sone Leakov. Right? You've heard that before. I'll translate it. It's a Halacha. It's known that Esav hates Yaakov. And people go to town with that. Why does. Why does this Maimer uh, Chazal of Shimon Bar say halacha? We usually don't talk about halacha uh, when we're dealing with uh, hashkafic elements, and yet Shimon Bar says halacha. And there are a number of questions about this. Um, I would say there's one question exactly: Who is Esav? If you haven't heard of a gadol around, there was a gadol in New York at the same time as Rav Moshe and Rav Yaakov, who Rav Moshe often would defer, not defer to, but send Shailus to when he didn't want to pass himself. That was Rav Henkin on the Lower East Side. Rav Henkin writes in very, very strong words. I happen to have them here if anybody wants to see, I think. Oh, I didn't print that page. Yeah, no, I do have it. He writes it in two places, in Le Vivra and in his more famous Sefer, his name I forgot at the moment, but he says, you know who Esav means? You know who Esav means? Everybody else says, maybe Esav is Edom. 
So it means Esau's descendants. Or Edom became the church. Or the Holy Roman Empire later became the, the Roman Empire, uh, which converted to Christianity uh, under Constantine, later became the Holy Roman Empire, which basically means Western Civ. Those are the guys who hate us. Ravenkin says it's all a mistake. Asaph means Asaph. It's all it means. Asaph means Asaph. Yaakov's brother. He hated him, so why when they met each other do you have those dots over the over the words that said by Yisha Kehu that according to one opinion means that he embraced him that he embraced him fully and felt for him as a brother. Ravenkin said it means Asaph, nobody else. But you can choose one of the others. Um, there's still questions. Halacha biyodua. Turns out, what's the source of that? It's a sifri. We now have the earliest ksavya, the earliest manuscript that's extant of the sifri. And guess what? It doesn't say it. The earliest version of the sifri says, Halo biyodua. Halo biyodua. So professor... Uh, Menachem Kahana at Hebrew U uh, in the Hagdama to this new printing of the Sifri says he thinks what happened is Halo was contracted by some printer as Hey Lamid Shmijik and then later in another printing was then expanded somebody assumed that Hey Lamid didn't mean Halo but Halacha so Halo became came Halacha to everybody else out there, halacha, because even though other hashkafic statements don't mean a hundred percent to be valid, this one is true for all times. But you can't say it's true for all times. Take a look at the Gemara Navarazara, Dafyuramabes, where Rebbe, Rabbeinu Akadosh of Yehuda Nasi, talks with his good friend Antoninus. And Marcus Aurelius Antonius, probably, but not for sure. But a Roman emperor, close friends, learns lots about their friendship. And Antoninus asked him one day, he says, uh, Bro, what's, what's going to happen with me after I die? Do I got a shot at Ganeiden? So, so uh, Rebbe says, You're going straight to Ganeiden. So he says, You pull my leg, you're just trying to humor me. You can't be right! And he cites a Pasuk. I couldn't cite the Pasuk, but he knew the Pasukim. And he cites a Pasuk about how much HaKadosh Baruch Hu hates Esau. And I'm from Esau. I'm Edo. What was Rabbeinu HaKadosh's response to him? He said, Ba'osa Maisa Esau. That's only when he acts like Esau. If he doesn't act like Esau, he goes to Ganeiden. Not, not every, I don't believe, and I can't accept, that every non-Jew, every one in Western civilization, every, every, every philosophical descendant of Edom is, is evil and hates Jews. I, I, can't, I can't buy it. Um, but you don't have to trust me. The Nitziv, on the, on the spot, on the Pasuk, and you have to see this Nitziv inside, so that it makes an impression on you. It's something you'll take along for life. The Nitziv says that, yes, Esav embraced his brother fully with open arms, and this is a story, a teaching Lidoros, that when Esav encounters us and accepts us as brothers, we should return the embrace. Okay, you can throw me out now if you want there is Absolutely. a middle ground to say it's not everybody, but it's a general mahalach. Definitely. I was about to get there. If you need a puzzle to talk about the longevity and the continuity and the constancy of anti-Semitism, I think there's a better puzzle. Hain Bilam said it. It's a puzzle in the Holy Bible. Hain am levadad yishkon. 
Bilam says, this is a nation that dwells alone. Uvagayim lo yischashav. And the others don't value us. Don't consider us significant. That's what we've seen in the streets since October 7th. Has there ever been a time? Yeah, there have been other times actually, but not in our lifetime, not in your lifetime, not even my lifetime, when Jews have felt more alone. I don't think we have to go past that pasuk to be aware of the fact that anti-Semitism is a constant, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put it into the Bria as a way of making sure that we didn't wander off too far, that as open and embracing as we are to others, and I'm one of those who believe we should, but we have to know that there are our limits. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu keeps the, keeps the pressure up through those who are not as enlightened. Okay, let's uh, start to wrap up. What are the takeaways from this? What does it leave us as far as current policy? And what does it mean for the future? So here I turn over the mic to one of the Gaonim of the late 20th century, the great Yogi Berra, who said, I hate to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> if you don't know who Yogi Berra is, Rabbi Schoonmaker will explain it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from New York will certainly be able to explain it. Okay. Where, where are we going with this? First point is, after understanding the antiquity and the ubiquity of anti-Semitism, don't try to cure it. Don't try to cure it. It's hardwired, it's there, you're not going to make it all disappear. There have been too many Jewish groups who thought that by adopting this stance or that stance, how many of the, the early secular Zionists felt that the reason for anti-Semitism is that we were a, a landless, pathetic people who have no power, and if we have our own state, it would cure anti-Semitism. It didn't it make anti-Semitism worse. By the way, that's, that's a reason not to give in to your cousins, some of you in B'nai Brak who say, it's all the fault of those evil Zionists. Those Zionists don't, don't exist anymore. And the few who did exist, they stopped existing on October 7th. Okay, there's still a mirahas at the Haaretz. You can't, you can't be perfect. But Zionism today doesn't have anything to do with those old silly ideas. Zionism today means that the Jews have a stake in this country, that Jews are entitled to their own land, and this is where we belong and we have the right to defend ourselves. Anyway, don't try to cure anti-Semitism. At the same time, don't get me wrong, don't treat it all as having the same root cause. As I said, it's protean. It takes many, many different shapes. And that means, that means that you can address pockets of it. Sometimes individual people, which helps. Sometimes, you know, how many stories have we heard about, about people in the, in the Holocaust? Individuals who, because of, of a, a positive encounter with their Jewish neighbors, wound up saving untold numbers of Jews. So don't give up on trying to reach out to people who are just trapped in their anti-Semitism by the unconscious part fed by, by MSM. And, and engage them. Talk about the facts. Talk about the contradictions. Don't give up on that. Three. The bubble that we enjoyed since the Holocaust, where anti-Semitism would not be socially acceptable in public, is gone. It's gone. It's over. It's the kind of thing that once you let it out of the bag, you can't stuff it back in again. We have to pretty much accept that there will be outward displays of anti-Semitism that will be acceptable, that will not be immediately dealt with 
the way we would want them to, that there will be more hostility shown face-to-face to Jews. I, I sat uh, two days ago, yeah, two days ago with Ori Varevi, Rosh Weiss, who uh, I had no idea. He, I knew he was gone for a couple of days because I tried to see him the week before and there was a sign post that he's in the States. Happened to be he went to the States for Simcha, but while he was there, Shai Shechter prevailed upon him to go to D.C. For what purpose? To sit with young staffers, congressional staffers, and staffers at the State Department, whose lives were being made miserable by their co-workers. And he was asked to come and give them and give them words of chizuk. While he was there, he also met with congressional leadership. No, no, all in a day's work. Uh, he he has been outstanding as a leader in this uh, in this war. So it's out of the box. It ain't going back in. Here's the one that may be a bit of a chiddush, and that I can only blame on my experience at the Wiesenthal Center. And this is our official and unofficial stance. Often, Jews are a little reluctant. We don't make a federal case out of it. It's, it's a minor incident. So we're not going to push it. We're not going to push it. And people within our community will have keep scorn upon people who every time there's one wall that's graffitied with a swastika, they call the mayor. No, call the mayor, by all means. The reason is very simple. The way politics works is that politicians respond to what the people in the street call for. If they're not so enthusiastic or not so many of them, they're not so enthusiastic either. If you want to protect rights, you have to demand, I mean, eventually, nice way, but you have to insist on their application. When they're anti-Semitic incidents to wherever you live, depending on how much Jewish influence there is in your community, do make a federal case out of it. Because if you don't, when there really should be a federal case made out of it, they'll be so lethargic and so used to not responding, you'll have to pull teeth and may not even be able to yank any. Enforce the official or expected expectations of what we get from government figures or people in the corporate structure, insist on that, not because you're a whining Jew, but because if you don't, it's going to become so much harder for the next guy. You have to hold the line. Again, you're not going to cure anything. But for those of you who never, unfortunately, are going to go back to Golos, I, 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 I actually stand up for all of you. You're far more courageous. Here we live where it's, you know, kind of, kind of uh, easy. Uh, any day that Iran doesn't incinerate us is a good day. But we walk around with far more feelings of security than my kids in Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Philadelphia. And finally, finally, and this is a big one, Know who your friends are. There are friends. There are tens of millions of friends. To ignore them is at our peril. We need all the friends we can get. We can question what is their agenda. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons to question. You have to deal with it. But we need their friendship. And we can call upon them and indeed... The real good ones come to our side and stand by us. Uh, this I'll close. In the immediate aftermath of October 7th, I mean like October 8th, my inbox was fairly full with inquiries. Let's be, how are we doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? They all came from Christians. I wasn't asking for them anything, but, but they knew me. They were concerned, and they concerned for the Jewish state. We need their friendship. And we should, we should cultivate it. What does that mean, Lamasa? Yeah, except for a couple of the interfaith directors like me. It means when you're in the old city and you see Christian tourists, 
whether they have just been spat on by the Kanoyim or not. Go over to them. Hey, where are you guys from? What did you think of the World Series? I missed the game of the week this week. What's it going? It's so good to see you here. Now, we'd rather see them here after Mashiach came and all of them gave up the Via Dolorosa for a different route to Harabayas so that they would be Mishtachabet HaKadosh Baruch Hu as Hashem Echot. But in the meantime, try to counter the negativity that they get, and they're getting plenty, by compensating for it, by giving them a smile. Any questions? I guess then what to make of, like I said earlier, the, the self-hating view. It seems like in the context of unconscious anti-Semitism, not only do they carry it the most, but all the people who otherwise are can point to their one Jewish friend, whether they're halakhically Jewish or not, that also agrees with them. So, of course, they're vindicated. Right, that has to be dealt with carefully. You can talk about Hanoi Rose can always find people who will get on the airwaves and say all kinds of things. But most of us learn to differentiate between the outliers and, and the real guys. I don't have any cure for self-hating Jews. Take a chassidish who has more oiv Yisrael than, more avas Yisrael than I do to come up with a, with a solution for them. I just don't know. But how we, how we deal with them on, on, the, on the level of advocacy, I think we have to point out that they are far from mainstream Jews, that these are not people. The, the line I like to use, it sounds a little nasty, so maybe think twice before using it, is that the difference between me and them is that I have, great, I have Jewish grandchildren, and they don't. That a Jew is someone who connects with the Jewish past, the Jewish present and the Jewish future. There's no Jewish future for them. They were in the line. It's it's hard to really come back from that. Um, Nothing from the women's section. We'll get them. Yeah. yeah. Let's go over there one more, and then we'll go. There's, um, a lot of us are like Bali here, so we have people from our past that speak up a little louder. A lot of us are like Bali Chubi here, whatever. We know people like Boy and whatnot that hold one way or the other. Especially if you have social media, you see a lot of stuff. Is there a worth our time to, to reply? Is there, like, is there worth our time to reply to like anti-stuff anti on, on social media? See, that you have to speak to your vein about the fair use of time. I'm not going to uh, render our life at this issue. Like, if, if I yes. were to be like, like very like, A hundred percent, yes. You'll be, you'll be let down much of the time, but you will make progress with some people. And if you think that every human being deserves to have a little bit more MS in his or her life than, uh, than yes. And we have excellent tools. We have excellent tools. Stand With Us is doing a great work, do a great job. PragerU has, uh, you know, just easily consumable sound bites that explain, that explain things with really named people. There was a new one, I think, released today by Stephen Harper, the former uh, Prime Minister of Canada about why we should stand behind, uh, behind Israel. He says, I was always taken aback by the question, why would we not stand behind Israel? Mm-hmm. But it's different when Stephen Harper says it and when I say it. So I, 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 I would say yes, an unqualified yes. One of man's opinion. Something from the women? Yeah. I've often been told to not engage. Stand up. I've often been told to not engage. You're saying we should. What's the balance? What's the balance? There are people you don't engage. If you, you, you see somebody with a, with a kafiyah and a Hamas headband, yeah, don't, don't engage. If, if, you're, if the nature of the conversation is somebody says, you know, I used to have a lot of sympathy for you on October 7th. It's horrific, and I still do. But it's vanished since then, since what you're... You're killing children. I don't care what the what the cause is. I'm always with the children, not the ones killing children. It's that kind of person you have to engage. 
Now, you only engage if you're armed with the tools. If you're not armed with the tools, there's not there's nothing to engage with. You'll just make more v'chil Hashem. But I, I think that part of our job, all of us, we're ambassadors for HaKadosh Baruch Hu and His Torah, and we, we must be armed. It's part of our responsibility to be armed, to be able to take the right arguments to people. Do you have examples, Rabbi, of um, strong self-hating Jews that afterwards we see them being Bali true? It's interesting, I can't, I can't necessarily think of it, not that I, not that I don't think it exists, I just don't remember so much, uh, is that, like, do we see, like, our cook talks in his letters about Yedin that are cut off? We also have Rabbi who wanted to kill Tamidei Chachamim, so I'm just wondering if you've seen Lamais, that's one question I had, and I, I, I want to know what you're thinking, honestly, about... Uh, about whether Jews should make Aliyah generally today. What's, what's your feeling about that? Specifically in, in regards to the times, it would be interesting for the Tzibur of the Year also. Don't, don't get that. me started on that one. <laughs> That's not a quick one. The first one, I have not encountered such people. I think it's significant <coughs> that in Rav Kook's Ksavim, especially the Hespit, the non-Hespit he wrote for Herzl, and the surrounding, and what he thought of Herzl, to contrast that with another one of the letters in Igor's where he talks about Max Nordau and even deletes his name. Heaps scorn and contempt on him. Of Cook, could you imagine that? But he saw he knew the difference. That there's some people who are like never they're far from Torah, but there but there's something in their Neshama and, and other people who've cut themselves off. I don't know if people, the closest I could come, and, and you couldn't call him a self-hating Jew, was you had, you had somebody like, like Nathan Birnbaum in Europe in the late 19th century, who was one of the absolute leaders of the, the anti-religious intelligentsia. Right? And then he did tshuva on a boat. It was, you know, and, and he became, he did such a turnaround that it became one of the architects of Aguda and wrote beautiful, beautiful stuff. But the self-hated, the Bernie Sanders kind of guy, uh, I, I... No, I haven't seen it. As far as making Aliyah, I, I can't do that, Barak al I... Can you take a few minutes? I don't have I think... Beryl Wine often says that you can't judge history because you're too close to it. But there's some things that we're not so close to anymore. We're not so close to the Holocaust and for the years after. It seems it seems that there's a pattern. This is so dangerous. I don't like doing it. Of, of telling people what I detect is what a Kurdish Baruch Hu is trying to do. I, I don't want to be accused of suffering from the Jerusalem syndrome. <laughs> but it does seem that a Kurdish Baruch Hu created a space for the development of the state. This is where we belong. We're supposed to be. It takes decades. He did not expect everybody to move overnight. He doesn't expect everybody today to be able to move here. But he has made it easier to live here and harder to live in Chutz Laaretz. And we don't have to guess why he might be doing that. We, we finally have an opportunity to be here. There are more opportunities in, uh, economically. The old Parnassa issue is not as much of an issue. It, as, as it was in previous years, just after COVID, just in the amount of remote remote uh, um, employment that's available today. Uh, soon, if Knesset ever really gets back into session, uh, they're, they're, they're supposed to, as this has bilateral support, to adopt the EU's rules about doctors from one country moving to another country which will be very relaxed. It means the doctor and uh, like five different um, me- uh, medical care uh, areas where people will be able to, to work here. Certainly after the war, we're going to need twice as many therapists as we already needed after COVID. So there are opportunities here. The other problem of Chinuch, Chinuch is still a major problem, but there are more there are more available options today in alternative schools than there were 10 years ago and than there were three years ago, and they continue to multiply. So I say that everybody should have one foot out of the door. 
whatever you're doing in Chutzlaretz, try to factor in the possibility of moving here at the first available opportunity. It may take you, I hate to say it is, Rabbi Kalinsky gave up on me, rightfully so, for all the decades that we fought about, you know, I'm ready, I can't, I can't. And I did, I, I did it the coward's way. I didn't come here until my last child was married, and I came here with a job. Big deal. For only you, it'll be much harder. But it's worth it. Any more questions for the women before we close down? <coughs> Donna, are we okay? We're fine. We'll count them. I'm also Okay. Yes, you should call for that later.